Welcome to Season 9 of American Political History, Wars Within Wars, The Origins of the South. The South was a very different concept than we think of today. Colonial America was broken into three regions, New England, the Mid-Atlantic, and the South. The regional differences were additionally compounded by the Navigation Acts, which limited trade and commerce between colonies. In 1700, the English colonies would have been defined as Carolina, and Barbados, since most of South Carolina's population had immigrated from Barbados, not through Virginia like the other Mid-Atlantic colonies. The rest of the South would have been Spanish Florida, French Louisiana, and the territories controlled by the native peoples of the region. The natives of the South had had a very different history than the Algonquian and Iroquois that we have discussed so far. The natives of the South had been in contact with the Spanish since 1520, They had long ago been decimated by European diseases, developed natural immunities, and repopulated. They also had a century and a half of diplomatic experience dealing with Europeans, before the English had even come to the New World. The oldest of the southern native nations were the Choctaw, Cherokee, Creek, and Catawaba. The Tuscarora, Westo, and Yamasee had arrived in the 17th centuries. The native nations of the South had developed decentralized political culture of loose confederacy of towns each town independently deciding if it's going to war, would make peace, or who they wanted to trade with. In 1528, Spanish conquistadors landed near present-day Tampa Bay. When they showed hostility to the Alabama nation, a part of the Creek Confederacy, they were repulsed. Only a handful of the 600-man expedition would make it back to their boats. Spanish conquistadors were thoroughly rejected from the south. Alvaro Nunez Cabiza de Aveca would write, The good armor had no avail against the Appalachee. The power and skill with which the Indians used their bows, which can be discharged 200 pieces at a time with such great precision that they will never miss. Their bows are thicker and longer than the European standard, and I have witnessed their bows put an arrow deep into a tree stump. The Spanish would come to fear war with the southern Indians. For they did not fear death, and viewed and cherished to be in war, so that they could prove their valor. Conquistador Soto ran through the south from 1539 through 1543, traveling from northern Florida to the Carolinas and then west across to the Mississippi. He would break deals, plunder villages, take wives, only to leave them a few weeks later, and he would even kidnap Sachem's wives and ransom them back. Soto's short-term gains alienated all of the southern nations to any future Spanish travelers. This destroyed Spain's century-long advantage in the south. The Spanish Catholic missionaries in Florida would write back to the Spain's crown, describing Soto's expedition as nothing other than greed and lechery, and the Spanish crown would respond by dictating, A church missionary must accompany any future conquistadors on their expeditions to ensure that their behavior toward the natives falls within the doctrines of Catholicism. The South is also a region where Europeans failed to establish settlements since the mid-16th century. Juan Pedro would establish a settlement just north of the Savannah River, on the Sea Islands in South Carolina. But the settlement would quickly fail. Tristan de Luna Aurelano would attempt to establish a settlement of Pensacola Bay in 1559, but after a powerful hurricane, the settlement was abandoned. Spanish settlements in Florida would continually struggle due to the prominence of English, French, and Dutch privateers. 
These privateers would be better described today as what we think of as pirates. The French would attempt a colony at St. Augustine in Florida, and then another near Port Royal, South Carolina. When the Spanish heard about the new French settlements, they sailed a warship to the settlements, demanded the surrender of the settlers. Once they had surrendered, they killed all the settlers but the most skilled labor, who they enslaved. Just before the settlement's destruction at Port Royal, the settlement's leader, Juan Ribot, was captured by English privateers while returning to France. The tales of what he was doing in North America inspired Sir Raleigh to send settlers to establish the Roanoke colony. When the English established their settlements at Roanoke and Jamestown, the Spanish were just as interested in removing them, but their warships were kept in the Caribbean, needing to defend their gold shipments. So they never managed to destroy the colonies that far up the Atlantic. Besides, who knew the colonies were going to last? Roanoke took care of itself, and no one in the 1610s, 20s, or 30s would have predicted Virginia's success. In the 17th century, Spanish Florida had had great difficulty attracting settlers, and the crown was pouring money into the region to prevent piracy from other European powers. Spain began to see Florida as nothing else than a military base to protect its valuable colonies in Central and South America. St. Augustine in Florida was placed under the administration of Spanish officials in Cuba and Mexico, who rarely sent their own funds to supply Florida. To the native nations of the South, their greatest threat did not come from Europeans. It came from the Westo. The Westo are believed to have been ethnically Iroquois and migrated from the Lake Erie region to the South sometime around 1650. Forced further south by the Powhatan Confederacy near Virginia, they eventually arrived at their new home along the Savannah River. They aggressively attacked their neighbors to establish a large territorial area to support their population of 8,000. In 1673, the Westo began attacking the Allied coastal nations around South Carolina. In 1674, Westo Sachems arrived at the plantation of Dr. Henry Woodward. Dr. Woodward spoke multiple languages and was well known to the natives to be a fair negotiator. The Westo expressed their desire to end hostilities with the Carolina colony and open a trade relationship. They took Dr. Woodward as a guest to their main town near present-day Augusta, Georgia. They gave him a 50-gun salute, showed him their town full of palisades, their 150 war canoes, and their preparations showing their ability and readiness for continual warfare. The Westo were demonstrating their strength so that they could begin negotiations for peace, that is, to show that they could continue to fight but they were choosing a preference for peace and friendship with the English. What Dr. Woodward learned was that the Cherokee, a rival of the Westo, had established a trading partnership with Virginia. Feeling threatened by this, the Westo wanted a European trading partner of their own. The Westo understood both. Carolina had an insatiable appetite for captives, and that engaging in the slave trade with the English would make them very wealthy. Carolina's advantage in trade was that English trade goods were far superior in quantity and quality, Carolina merchants could simply offer the Westo more trade goods in exchange for captives than the Spanish in Florida or the French in Louisiana. Additionally, South Carolina is geographically closest out of the European settlements. The Westo established their trade partnership with Carolina, and they started engaging in war specifically to capture and sell slaves. In a far more visceral sense, they started hunting other native nations. The Indian trade would cause tension in South Carolina because the proprietors of the colony had monopolized that trade for themselves, appointing a few through patronage to share in that wealth. In April of 1677, the proprietors forbid the sale of goods to all natives outside of Port Royal for a period of seven years. 
This edict didn't create compliance. South Carolina was too far away to be regulated. What it caused instead was a culture of disdain towards the proprietary rules and acceptance of circumventing colonial regulations. But the economic incentive in South Carolina was the same as the Westo. Encourage war between and engage in war with natives, because war would always mean more available slaves to purchase. In October of 1671, the Cuso nation, who lived 30 miles upstream from Charleston, threatened to ally themselves with Spain, because the English and Westo had settled themselves into territory unannounced and without their approval. Carolina refused to acknowledge their territorial claims, since the colony had purchased those lands legally from other native nations who had had control of the territory at the time of the sale. Carolina declared war on the Cuso, who retreated into the western Piedmont, abandoning the lowland region that they had contested as theirs. Eventually, the peace treaty that they had to sign with Carolina would require the Cuso nation to annually send deerskins to the colony in order to keep the English's favor. The Westo, having protected their eastern flank from attack, the Carolina colony, engaged in warfare over the next decade with the Cherokee, Chickasaw, Chisaka, Coita, and Cusita. Carolina quickly learned that having an alliance with the Westo severely limited their options for positive relationships with virtually all other southern native nations. In 1680, war would briefly break out between the Carolina colony and the Westo. The proprietors were worried that any disruption in the fur trade could draw Whitehall's attention, and that attention was never good for any proprietors. As soon as the proprietors heard of the war, they ordered the colonial administrators to immediately make peace with the Westo on reasonable terms. They also ordered that trade with the Westo could only be conducted at a couple of hand-selected plantations. Westo warriors approaching any other plantation would be considered hostile, and violence would be justifiable. If you didn't notice, there is a subplot here. The plantations where trade could be conducted were conveniently their personal plantations. The proprietors used this minor skirmish with the Westo to cement once again their complete monopoly over the native trade. And since the proprietors knew that the population of South Carolina would not see these terms favorably, they decided that the peace treaty would be written in the Westo's language, so it would be difficult for the colonists to translate the terms. The Westo were at war with virtually all of the region's native nations, which made them more and more dependent on supplies from South Carolina in order to survive. And the Indian trade with the Westo was completely monopolized to the benefit of the proprietors living in England. So South Carolina's leadership began to work around the Westo, attempting to open trade with the Savannah Nation, so that they could conduct the Indian trade beyond the oversight of the proprietors. When Carolina merchants began diverting supplies away from the Westo, they immediately became overwhelmed by their enemies and were torn apart. Carolina's leadership invited the Savannah Nation to move along the Savannah River in territory that had so recently been vacated by the Westo. The Savannah would poach the remnants of the Westo Nation and sell them to Carolina merchants as slaves. The proprietors would receive letters warning them of the colony's greed of choosing to enslave such recent native allies. In response, the proprietors ordered the colony to pass laws which prevented the colony from conducting slave trading within a 200-mile radius of the colony. But years of the proprietors' heavy-handed actions had resulted in the complete loss of support of the colonists for the proprietors. All of these new ideas were loosely enforced, a blind eye turn, or simply ignored. Powerful families of South Carolina like the Moors and Middletons had established their wealth on the native slave trade. They now used every political power to oppose the proprietors at every turn. 
the slave trade was becoming the most powerful economic incentive in the South. Carolina merchants became wealthy by expanding their plantations and selling excess slaves to other colonies. The native nations engaging in the slave trade with South Carolina became wealthy, supplied with metal tools, guns, alcohol, textiles. And all they had to do was sell their enemy captives or return Carolina's runaway slaves. In the 1680s, after the Westo's defeat, the Savannah were the first large native group to settle along the Savannah River taking the role as South Carolina's chief trade partner and defensive buffer. The Yamasee were the next nation, migrating north from Spanish Florida to occupy lands vacated by the Westo along the Savannah River. According to Spanish records, the Yamasee decided to move to get away from Spanish requirements that friendly natives under their protection participate in compensatory labor to the Spanish crown. Given the state of the Spanish Empire in the late 17th century, this move had more to do with Spain's inability to protect their vassals than it did with the labor demand itself. The Yamasee would quickly take up the mantle of the most aggressive slavers in the South, and their knowledge of Spanish Florida posed a special threat to the natives living in Florida. By 1685, the Yamasee were selling slaves to Carolina from the Timucua Nation, a nation from Florida that Carolinians had never even heard of. In 1691, Seth Sothel, one of the proprietors, arrived in Charleston to directly govern the colony. His first goal was to regulate the Indian trade's profits back to the hands of the proprietors. He banned any merchant from fixing native firearms or teaching them how to fix firearms. He banned the sale of alcohol, and he prohibited trade with natives west or south of Savannah Town. Savannah Town was a trading post set up near the Savannah Nation on the Savannah River, where many nations would come and trade with Carolina merchants a post which the trade could be monitored by Carolina officials. Penalties were established for violating the proprietor's Indian trade regulations. These included fines and imprisonment without bail. But Governor Sothel was most interested in looking out for his own personal profits. While he was acting colonial governor, one-third of the colony's taxes would go to line his personal pockets. A few years later, the proprietors removed him as governor for illegally imprisoning colonialists and granting commissions to pirates. He was replaced by Philip Ludwell, who lasted a year before he was removed for disregarding the proprietor's wishes. Ludwell was replaced by Thomas Smith, who died the next winter in 1694. As the governorship became a carousel, the Carolina Assembly began to assert its authority over the colony. In 1701, the Assembly passed the Act for Preservation of Runaways Deserting This Government. The legislation prevented the free movement of colonists outside the colony. Anyone found by natives without a pass north of the Santee River or south of the Savannah River was subject to seizure. To obtain a pass, individuals had to give a deposit or give 21 days warning so that their creditors had time to file complaints against any outstanding debt. Additionally, anyone assisting a runaway would face a hefty 50-pound sterling fine or six-month prison term. Natives that captured runaways received arms, ammunition, and possible reward dictated by the governor. English vigilantes were allowed to beat runaways if necessary, but natives could only beat a runaway if a colonist was present to witness the necessity of it. Carolina was becoming increasingly dependent on allied nations for exterior defense and their interior policing of slaves and debtors. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you, and until next time.